It was the minister who told the story at Mum and Dad's golden wedding anniversary, if memory serves me right. He gave a little speech at the party, telling everyone about the first time he'd come to the Rhonda, way back in the last century, as a prospective new pastor for Bethel Baptist Chapel, Tonopandi. Dad was one of the deacons, so the nervous young candidate called at our house. We lived on Tillacalin, in the last block at the bottom of the hill, just below Pennegride Rugby Club. The would-be minister would have climbed the steep steps up from the pavement. Dad would have answered the door, saying, Welcome, brother, and testing him out with a firm handshake. And Mam would have insisted that he should have a cup of tea. But first, smiling proudly, she would have escorted him, as she did with all first-time visitors, to the front room window, so that he could admire the view. To her, it was like gazing on the promised land. Our house was directly across the road from the old naval colliery, but that had been closed the year after I was born. The site had been cleared and partially redeveloped. In fact, one of my most vivid boyhood memories was standing in a crowd one Sunday morning outside the rugby club, the old colliery manager's house, to watch the stack, the colliery chimney, being blown up and demolished. So there was a young minister-to-be, looking out of our bay window, the view, Mam's view, the one she was so proud of. To the right, Grig Park, the spanking new rugby ground, laid out where the colliery spoil-tip once stood. Rising behind it, Craigoreos, the Nightingale's Rock, lovely name. Directly opposite, the mass of Trialo Mountain, covered in heather. To its left, below Penrice, the green flanks of Tintilla, and glinting in the last of the afternoon sun, long lines of slate roofs leading the eye northward, teasing it with a hint of the comb opening up again towards Triorchy. Completing this vast panorama, the sheer slopes of Glencornell, once bare but adorned now by the Forestry Commission's upright Scots pines. My grandpa, who'd scarcely been further than Cardiff in his long life, had always delighted in the afforestation. Oh, it's just like Switzerland, man, he'd say. Mam knew that the splendour of all this would impress this pleasant young man. She waited in silence, giving him every chance to drink it all in. There was no need to gild the lily. Finally, she decided the time was right to prompt his appreciative response. Beautiful view, isn't it? she said. Genuinely puzzled, he replied. It's a petrol station. was right, of course. Large as life, dominating the foreground, just yards away, directly across the main road, was the Shell petrol station. Cars and tarmac, glass and concrete and plastic, pumps and prices and adverts and the Shell logo and all, built on the site of the little reservoir that served as the old naval colliery feeder, owned and managed by Mr Morgan next door. It wasn't that Mam didn't know all of that, or couldn't see it. She could. She simply screened it out in favour of the bigger picture. Perhaps it helped to have a lifelong attachment to that biblical verse, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. The minister said later he really didn't know if she was setting some kind of test for him. His confusion opened my eyes to what I'd taken for granted. For the first time, I realised how telling it all was. 
this filling station on the site of what had been a working mine, where my grandpa had been the colliery blacksmith, where once they dug coal, now they pumped petrol. From this exact spot had come the black diamond that propelled warships and great ocean liners and powered massive cargo vessels to the far ends of the earth. Now the fuel was brought here to fill up cars for shopping trips, journeys to work, sunny day outings to beauty spots. The world had moved on. The motive force that drove it had changed. What once upon a time the Ronda had been, the engine house of modernity, other places, faraway places, were now becoming. Texas, the Persian Gulf, the oil states of the Middle East. Power had shifted. That was what the economic crisis of my teenage years in the 1970s was all about. Oil and the power of oil. That was why there'd been galloping inflation, why the pound had to be devalued, why Britain had had to go cap in hand to the IMF, as Rhonda Colliers once had had to go to the mine owners. It was all here, right in front of me, and I'd never seen it in all the time I was growing up. King Cole was dead. Oil now ruled. Mam Vach, there'd be an almighty struggle over it one day. The sheikhs and the sultans would make sure that the wealth generated by oil stayed in their hands, stayed in their homelands. And why not? What a contrast to the fortunes that came from the coal industry, which had been sucked out of these valleys, leaving them high and dry. There was another story about our house, which the minister didn't tell, though he'd probably heard it from Mam at some point. It happened a decade before his visit. We were getting the house modernised. Perhaps something similar happened to your house. The original Edwardian features, the fireplaces, covings and skirting boards were stripped out. Smart white radiators replaced the open coal fires, Artex on the ceilings. The back kitchen, our cosy sitting room with its freestanding stove, was turned into a proper modern kitchenette. The lean-to bathroom, scullery and outdoor toilet were demolished. Instead, a square, flat-roofed extension was purpose-built to house an up-to-the-minute bathroom suite, matching tub, sink, toilet and all. The wall between the front parlour and the middle room was knocked through, with a pair of full-length sliding glass doors between the two to allow for some privacy. Whilst we were away on holidays, the builders fitted the doors with trendy tulip-patterned glass. The tulips on one door were upside down, but it was too late to do anything about that by the time we got back. Only the cutch under the stairs remained, as a reminder of how old-fashioned it all used to be. One Saturday morning, before all of this building work had begun, Dad and I had gone up through the tiny trap door into the attic to measure up so that we could fill in the form for the loft insulation grant the government was offering. No one had been up there for years, decades probably. I went first up the homemade stepladder my grandfather had put together, poking my head warily into the dark space beneath the eaves. We'd brought a torch with us. What was revealed in the beam of light was an eye-opener. Across the whole floor of the attic, from wall to wall, lying there between each rafter, a full four inches deep, there was already a perfectly good form of insulation. It was pitch black. It was powdery. It was coal dust. 
house, you see, was less than 50 yards away from the upcast shaft of the naval colliery. The dust had been settling there ever since the house was built. Imagine putting the washing out or trying to keep the rooms clean every day in an atmosphere like that. Imagine working underground. That was the price of coal, the real price. Dust. Dust on every surface in the house. Dust on clothes, dust on skin. Dust in the lungs of the colliers. Dust to dust they went, so many of them. We never did get the government's insulation put up in our attic. There wasn't any point, was there? It was all thoroughly draft-proof as it was, sealed off by all that settled coal dust. Mind you, if a house had ever gone on fire, you'd have been able to warm your hands in blind ronda. I'm John Geraint Roberts. Join me next time for another trip down memory terrace in John on the Ronda.